Speaking of weird words, um, the sermon today is called the unconundrum. There are two words that make me suspicious. It's unlimited and unconditional. Right? Anytime I see that there's an unlimited or an unconditional warranty, I immediately want to read the fine print just a bit closer. Because if you notice, it'll say this is an unlimited warranty or an unconditional warranty. And then when you read the fine print, right, as long as you don't use it for normal wear and tear and only use it one hour a week, you know, right? there's all these crazy things that are attached to the unconditional or the unlimited. And the moment that I hear those words, I start looking for the fine print, not only when I'm buying something like a car or a cell phone plan, but also I've used or have similar feelings when I'm talking about faith. When we hear about God's unlimited or unconditional love, God's unlimited forgiveness, we begin thinking, yeah, I've heard about that before, but what's the catch What's the fine print? We are, with that as kind of in our background, this, 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 the, un, the, the unconundrum, with that kind of rumbling around in our head, I want to pick back up where we left off last week. Last time we were together, Jesus had just begun his way into Jerusalem. At the beginning of the journey, he had healed Lazarus, which set into motion a whole host of issues which eventually is going to lead to his death. The religious leaders, the religious elite, are not happy that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead because it has only made his popularity grow. And so they decide that they're not only going to knock off Jesus, but they're also going to kill Lazarus because as long as he is walking around, he is living and walking proof that something brand new, something new has broken into the world. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration where Jews would get together from miles and miles around. They would all converge on Jerusalem and they would celebrate the fact that God had delivered their ancestors over a thousand years before from an oppressive power. It was a miraculous freedom march, right? They, they, were, they were slaves for over 400 years. They'd been oppressed for over 400 years and they cried out to God and God heard their prayers and he delivered them. And for, and for centuries and centuries and centuries, they had celebrated this moment through the Passover Seder, through the Passover meal, through the Passover celebration. But this celebration was a bit bittersweet because while they got together and celebrated their, liberation, their ancestors' liberation from Egypt, they were also reminded that their own prayers had not been answered, that they were in occupied territory. Israel was occupied by Rome, which was in many ways an oppressive power. So while they were celebrating God's liberty and freedom in the past, in the present, things weren't going so well. But in spite of that, Passover was a big deal. Jerusalem would go from 50,000 residents to 250,000 people. Rome would send in an entire garrison of soldiers just to make sure that nothing went wrong because if something was going to go wrong, it was going to go wrong during the Passover celebration. 
Thousands and thousands of pilgrims would pour into the city. Every road is packed. Everyone is moving in the same direction. There is not a hotel to be had for miles. At the same time, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are keeping their eyes and their ears opened for Jesus' movements. In fact, they have spies that they placed around the land watching for a moment, watching for a time when Jesus is vulnerable. In John eleven fifty seven, we read, but the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. But there was a caveat because they were savvy politicians. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 2, we read, but not during the festival where the people might riot. Jesus was a folk hero. Everybody loved Jesus. And so if they were, if the religious elite were to mess with Jesus, there would be an uprising from the people. And so the idea was that surely we'll be able to spot him in a moment when he snuck off to pray or when it's early in the morning or late at night when nobody else is around and we can quickly arrest him and take him away. We can do an extradition and no one will even notice that he's gone. And then once we take care of Jesus, we can also find Lazarus and kill him as well. John 12, beginning with verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So word has spread, Jesus is on the move, and everyone wants to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And so word begins to spread about Jesus' location, and, and before long, there are throngs of people who have surrounded Jesus. Jesus and his disciples need to make their way down the road, and so eventually they begin to clear a path. Some are on the left and some are on the right. And as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, some, it just spontaneously people begin to cry out, Hosanna. Verse 13 says, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting Hosanna. It looked a bit like a coronation of a conquering hero. And as he progressed towards the city, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means help us, save us. There is a desperation in their voice. Jesus, we are in desperate need of help. But then it turns political. And they say, blessed is the king of Israel. See, they had assumed that Jesus had come to Jerusalem to do something for the nation, but in fact, Jesus had come to do something for them as individuals, to do something for the entire world, all people and all times. Unbeknownst to them, over the next few days, Jesus would be moving quickly towards his death. Had you told them in this moment why literally thousands of people are lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, Lord save us, Lord help us. Had you told them that Jesus just a few days later would be dead, they wouldn't have believed you. He was invincible. Nobody was going to touch Jesus. And through this moment, Jesus would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's covenant with Israel. So for the next few days, Jesus keeps a low profile. If he's in private, he tries to stay hidden. And if he's in public, he tries to be around as many people as he possibly can. He even hangs out for a few days in the temple knowing he's safe because there are people 
everywhere. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they finally get their break, the thing that they have been waiting for, because one of Jesus' main followers, one of his key disciples, breaks rank. We all know the story of Judas Iscariot, right? Judas, um, he goes, and we, the story is told that he exchanges Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's the treasurer. It makes sense. Accountants care more about money than people. We know this, right? It just, it just makes sense. I'm sorry, accountants. But when we read the story, we kind of assume that's why he betrays Jesus. And there is probably some truth to that, as there is truth to accountants, to the idea that accountants care more about money than people. I'm kidding. So he... Um, he, I believe, actually turns Jesus in, not just because he wants the 30 pieces of silver, but because he's actually begun to realize exactly what Jesus is up to. I think he begins to realize he's smart. He's been paying attention closer than, say, some of the other disciples to Jesus' words and what Jesus has been saying. And he knows that this is going to end in Jesus getting himself killed. And he's trying to get ahead of this. He wants to get on the good side of the religious leaders before Jesus gets himself killed. Because he's beginning to realize that Jesus cares absolutely nothing about being a conquering hero. That Jesus cares nothing about being a king. Judas 22, verse, or sorry, Luke 22. See, if he hadn't betrayed Jesus, there would be a Judas 22. <laughs> I can just see the tweets now. Local pastor makes up his own gospel. Luke 22, 4 through 6, beginning with verse 4. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the, the, the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. He had the itinerary. He, he knew where Jesus was going to be. He knew the perfect moment when they could sneak in and take Jesus away. And the text tells us that they were delighted. It, it literally says they were giddy that they had finally found a way to capture Jesus. Jesus was a threat to their power. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus did not come to take anything. Jesus came to give something. And so we read, and they agreed to give him money, and he consented, and he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowds were present. The stage is set the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of might and power versus the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of violence-oriented arrangements versus a kingdom of peace. An upside-down kingdom where it is not the powerful who are blessed, but it is the meek and the powerless. And what they will realize that is that Jesus does not cling on to his life or to power because he knows that whatever you cling to, whatever you place ultimate importance on will ultimately be your downfall. That whatever you cling to will be the thing that you eventually lose. But before that, before his final moments, there are a few loose ends that he needs to tie up. And so he invites his disciples to celebrate one final Passover Seder in the upper room. We talked last week a bit more about how that meal begins, about how Jesus takes off his outer robe and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Today we go to the, to the actual meal. 
Matthew 26, 26 says this, that while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when they had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Luke's gospel says, this is my body given for you. And just as they were about ready to take their first bite, he said this. He said, do this in remembrance. Now, at that moment, they knew exactly what they were doing this in remembrance of because they had celebrated the Passover Seder since they could walk. They had celebrated this Passover Seder for as long as they can remember, and their parents had celebrated before them, and their grandparents before them, and their grandparents before them, and their grandparents before them. For generations, this same meal had been celebrated where they remembered their rescue, where they remembered their freedom, where they remembered their liberation. And every part of this meal has symbolism. There's something that every piece of food that you eat represents. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance, they're like, duh, Jesus, we know what we're doing this in remembrance of. But then there's a twist because Jesus says, do this and remembrance of me. You don't, and I've said this before, we, we miss the gravity of this. You don't mess with Passover. You don't change Passover. You, I was trying to, I, I, I've talked about this before, trying to like illustrate the absurdity of this moment. But this has been the central tradition of Judaism for a thousand years years. They know the Passover Seder by heart. And then Jesus comes and says, hey, by the way, this meal that you've been celebrating for a thousand years that is about your liberation from Egypt, about your ancestors' liberation from Egypt, where you look towards the past and then you also look towards a future liberation, that's about me. My best analogy that I've used before is imagine that I were to get up here on Sunday and as we're heading towards Christmas and I'm going to be like, this year we're celebrating Christmas. And do you know what we celebrate at Christmas time? We celebrate the birth of Kevin. You would immediately roll your eyes. You're like, well, that is a bridge too far. Next Sunday, no one shows up at church. They're like, you know what? You've done a good job until this point exegeting Scripture, but you've finally gone off the deep end. It's ridiculous. And I know that when we look back, he's Jesus, he's the king. But in this moment, there's a lot of questions about Jesus and his ministry and who he says he is. And I guarantee you, as they're sitting around that table, that a few of the disciples wonder if he's not a lunatic. Definitely Judas did, because if he'd known that he was the king of kings who would one day rule all things that he wouldn't have betrayed him. There's a question in the back of their mind, is this guy really the Messiah or is he a psychopath? And then at the end of the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup. And they know exactly what this cup is about. This is the cup of salvation. This is the cup that reminds them of that moment a thousand years ago, the night before their liberation, when they killed a lamb and placed the blood of a lamb over the doorpost and the, the angel of death passed by and they were liberated, they were saved. This is the cup of salvation. 
But Jesus says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This cup has always represented a celebration of God's covenant with his nation, with his people. But Jesus says, no, 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 this is the cup of the new covenant. This evening, there is a brand new covenant that begins in your midst. Now, if they'd been paying attention in Sunday school or rabbinical school or wherever they learned the Hebrew scriptures, they would have known that 650 years before this moment, the prophet Jeremiah had said this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And then he says this, he tells how this covenant will be different. Because in this new covenant, I will put my law and their minds and I will write it on their hearts. In this new covenant, there's going to be a new law and this law will be a law of conscience. He said, I'm unleashing and establishing something brand new, something like the world has never seen before. This is the cup of the new covenant. Now, at this moment, the question that might have popped into their mind or the question that they should have asked is, okay, Jesus, we'll go with you. It's the cup of a new covenant. But what kind of covenant? Because in the ancient Near Eastern world, there were various types of covenants in the same way that today there are various ways of entering into contracts with people. There are the unconditional covenants, But there are also conditional covenants. And so you can impress your friends tomorrow at work. I decided I would tell you the three key common types of covenants in the ancient Near Eastern world. The first, this is is fun. In the first, there is the bilateral parity treaty. The bilateral parity treaty. Now, there's not going to be a test, but still pay attention. The bilateral parity treaty. It, in this contract, in this type of covenant, in this type of contract, it's a similar to a business contract today. It's basically, if you will do these things, I will do this. If you will provide these widgets, I will pay you X number of dollars. But this is a contract entered into among equals, right? So you have some say. There's some negotiating room. You're like, okay, I will provide you X number of widgets if you pay me this amount of money. And you're like, ah, that's a little too expensive. And then you're able to renegotiate the contract. This is a contract among equals. They figure it out and then they ratify the contract. And then to bring about ratification, they would do something like cut their wrists or they'd kiss or hug or sometimes trade their daughters. It was a very, very weird world. Anyway, but it was a covenant among equals. The next type of covenant, and this one, this is a doozy. It is a bilateral suzerian tea treaty. I I can't ever not get that word. A suzerian is a king, a ruler. And this is not an equal covenant. The best description I, can, I have of this covenant is curfew, right? Your dad or your mom is like, my house, my rules. You want to borrow the car? My car, my rules, right? There's not a lot of negotiating. Someone dictates the terms of the covenant. If you 
do what you're required, if you stay with inside the bounds of the covenant, life will go well for you, very much like your curfew. But if you get outside the bounds of your covenant, life will not go so well. And this was the original covenant that God has with Israel, where he basically is establishing a nation state. He's creating the boundaries of what it means to be this nation, what it means to be the people of God. And there are some rules that go around that, right? There are some ways that they should govern themselves in the world. And if they abide by those rules, if they live by that covenant, then life will go well and they will flourish and they will be blessed. But if they fail to abide by that covenant, then destruction will come. And so all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's this up and down rhythm of Israel will do God's will. They will live in accordance with the covenant and blessings will come. And then they screw it up. And as soon as they screw things up, destruction comes. A foreign power will come and take them over. And then they will cry out, dear God, we're so sorry. We really messed it up that time. Will you please forgive us? We'll be good again. And then blessings come. And then like an hour later, they've messed up again. This is something people just in the Near Eastern world did. It's very odd, right? Back and forth. They never can stick with what they've committed to do. But then there's a third type of covenant. And it's a promissory covenant or patron covenant. And in this particular covenant, one party binds itself to an obligation for the benefit of another party. And it's unconditional. And only one party is required to enter it. It's unilateral. The best example from Scripture is Abraham in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, he's hanging out underneath the stars and God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation and all the people of the world will be blessed. And it's not conditional. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to stick with you and I'm going to keep my promise no matter what you do. Right? I am making this commitment. It's a promissory covenant. It's a promise to the other party for their benefit. It's not I will if you will. It's I will even if you don't. Now the thing about ancient covenants is they were pretty much all ratified the same way. Some blood had to be spilled. Sometimes if it was a minor contract, buying a car, you just had to cut your wrist. If you were buying a house, and this is, I, I don't know this for sure, but this is, this is the best I can figure out. If you were buying a house, it's a pretty big deal. It's a big covenant. So then an animal has to get killed. If you're buying like a building downtown, a lot of animals need to get killed. Like depending on the severity or the level of the covenant, how many animals need to get killed. And this is all a little gray. It's a little hard to figure all this out. But something had to die typically an animal. And what they would do often is they would literally split it right down the middle and they would lay the animal open and then the parties that were entering into the covenant or entering into the contract would walk through the middle of the carcass. They'd split the carcass open and then both of them would walk through the carcass and they would essentially say something um, like, if I don't keep my agreement, may it be unto me as it was unto this animal. May I be cut in two. 
In fact, just one more thing to impress your coworkers tomorrow. They, they think this is where they get um, the phrase to cut a deal, right? So you, you cut it open and then you can walk through it. Now, back to Genesis 15 and God's promise with Abraham. This happens in Genesis chapter 15. An animal is cut in two. But here's what's interesting. Abraham never walks through it because it was a promissory covenant. One person was making the promise. One party would walk between it. When God appeared to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And then they cut open several animals, and they halved them into, they cut them in two, and there was a space in between, but Abraham did not walk between them. Now the question was, on the night of Passover, what kind of covenant was Jesus establishing? And Jesus answered this question, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. He said, this is the cup, or this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus is saying, it is 100% for you, and it's 100% on me. Matthew adds a few words, he said, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And from now on when you gather, when you gather and celebrate this meal, you will no longer be remembering your delivery, your freedom from Egypt, but you will remember this new covenant. And his disciples had to have been like, what do you mean, Jesus? Why is, your blood's not gonna be spilled. You are, in just a couple days, you are going to be the conquering hero, but if they would remembered, if they would remembered when Jesus started his ministry, there was an illusion of this moment. John chapter 1 verse 29, we read, look, when he sees Jesus, he says this, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the next day on the cross, this covenant would be ratified with Roman nails. The new covenant, a new arrangement, a new agreement between God and humanity that would not just be for one people in one time, but would be for all people in all places. It was an unconditional covenant. It was a promissory covenant. Only one, one party was like, I will stick by this no matter what happens. Now the question is, are there conditions? And there are. But the condition is simply this. Follow me. Like I've done, I have provided a new way forward. I have provided freedom. I have provided liberation. All that is required of you is to follow me. And John, who sat there that night with Jesus, and it was just as confused as everyone else, the same John who watched Jesus die, the same John who comforts Mary after Jesus has died, the same John who peered, or who peered into the empty tomb, the same John who had breakfast with Jesus on the beach says this in John 3.16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John would say, look, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to have life everlasting, 
Just take a step forward. Take the step towards Jesus. The invitation to the new covenant is simply an invitation to follow me. Now, one of the things that happens is that some of us, we get caught up on the theology of things. We're smart people. Those people back in ancient times and places, they don't know anything. We know so much more now. They were signing documents in blood. We have DocuSign, right? We are so far advanced. And what we do is we sometimes, we sometimes try to take our worldview and our concepts and try to place it on the ancient world. And then we love to get in arguments about what type of atonement theory is the proper type of atonement theory. There's four key atonement theories. Do I go through them? No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep myself on track. There's four key atonement theories, and people love to fight about them, and which one do you believe in, and, is it, and, it, and in some traditions, it becomes a really big deal. Like, people fight over these things. But if you read the scriptures, what you discover is that you find all the atonement theories. And for me, it's really not that important what happens or how it happens which particular atonement theory is correct. Because sometimes I think we get so stuck in the minutia trying to figure something out that cannot be spoken of, right? You know this. We are never going to be able to figure out any of this with certainty. But the thing is that we do know with certainty, the thing that we cling to is that God in Jesus emptied himself of power. He entered into creation and he gave up everything and he allowed himself to be killed on behalf of people who were trapped and who were in need of liberation. And then on the third day, he was arose again and there is now resurrection power and that we are invited into that same story. That we as people who are broken, we as people who are in need of salvation, who are in need of liberation, who are in need of freedom from the things that hold us captive, we can live a new life. There is salvation available. And then the question becomes, if salvation is available, how do I get saved? Well, there's all kinds of great answers for that too. We have things like the Roman road or the ABCs of salvation. There's some tracks. I'm sure you can find someone in a street corner here in D.C. that has a track that will spell it out to, for you. And there are scripture verses to go along with every step. The problem is that those scripture verses are spread all throughout scriptures. Most of the ways that we view salvation aren't particularly biblical. Is there anything wrong with the sinner's prayer or the Roman road or the ABCs of salvation? N no other than the fact that it's not particularly biblical. But besides that, there's nothing wrong with it. But the biblical understanding of salvation is this. Is that Jesus does something for us and then invites us to participate, to die to ourself and to participate in what he is doing in the world. And he does that through this, re, through this simple call, follow me follow me. It is not fix yourself up and become perfect and then follow me. It is this. It is follow me in spite of your brokenness. It is, it is follow me in spite of your mistakes. It's 
follow me in spite of all the things that you, you continue to mess up day after day after day. Follow me, and as we journey together through the power of the Spirit that is at work within you, you will be transformed into the very image of Christ Jesus, an image of perfect love. And what does that look like? It looks like love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. But the invitation to salvation is simply an invitation to follow Jesus. And historically, the way that you make that invitation public is through baptism. It's why baptism is such a big deal here at the table. Because we believe that as we enter into the waters of baptism, and we are all about like full submersion, dunk people and hold them under for 30 seconds. That, the last part's a joke. But we are about full submersion. Because it is, it is both, we believe, it is a, we believe that it is, it is transformative, that as we go under the waters of baptism, that we are dying to the old and we are being raised to new life. It is a declaration to God that I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. It is also a declaration to all that is watching that I have committed my life to become a follower of Jesus. I am following this crazy rabbi who who on, when he walked this earth had, absolute, had very few followers in the grand scheme of things, but over the next few hundred years changed the face of human history. Someone who calls us to a way of love and joy and peace and kindness. Someone who told us that it is the meek who are blessed, not the powerful. It is the poor who are blessed, not the rich. And we are we are invited to follow this rabbi and as we are baptized, we are making a declaration to all who are watching that I have dedicated my life to this new kingdom, to this new way of living. But, baptism is also a covenant between the community and the person being baptized. We are binding ourselves to you that we are going to walk with you on this journey of following Jesus during the good times, during the bad times, when things are great and when things aren't so great, when you fail and when you succeed, when you cry and when you're happy. Whatever it is that life brings, we are with you on this journey. You are not following Jesus alone. And so this evening, I want to end with an unabashed call to enter the waters of baptism. On Easter Sunday, we are going to do a baptism service, and there's no better time to get baptized in Easter, because it is already a party. It is already a celebration. And when you enter the waters of baptism, we we have some ancient things we ask you to do, like will you renounce sin and the devil and evil in the world? And then we ask you, will you declare to the world and all who are watching that you follow Jesus? And then we turn it on the congregation and we ask the congregation, will you commit yourself to this person? And then we cheer like our favorite team has just won the Super Bowl. And it's a party. Because we have a new family member. And so if you've not been baptized and you want to make that step, you want to make that declaration, I would invite you to get baptized on Easter Sunday. Um, you, can, uh, you can just email me. You can see Pastor Jessica or Pastor Angela. Or if you know Pastor Richard, you can grab him. Um, we would love to invite you into the waters of baptism. There is a new covenant 
just for you. Now, we have a few more loose ends that I need to tie up next week, but we'll save that for then. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this new covenant. We thank you for the gift that you offered us so many years ago. And tonight, we will once again celebrate this meal. And as we celebrate this meal, we will begin by confessing our unworthiness, by confessing our brokenness. We will be reminded that our love failed, but even when our love fails, your love remains steadfast. God, I thank you for the gift of salvation. I thank you for this new way of living. May we be bold and declare that we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. In Jesus' name, amen.